0: Hey everybody! Welcome back to another episode of Born to Reign. We are back at it again with some more eschatology for you. We know y'all love it. We love it. It's it's so much fun. Who 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 doesn't love it? It's everybody's favorite topic. Everybody's favorite topic. So we're following up, answering some more questions that we've received in, in the previous weeks, dealing with some more objections, uh, that yep. type of thing to the topic of uh, postmillennialism and its implications in life. So we we did a, a previous episode kind of discussing some of the common objections that we've heard in the past, just a few weeks ago. Uh, this is kind of a part two, if you will, but also taking a, a, a little bit different direction, dealing with some more um, different objections. Yeah, uh, and this is, I would guess that
1: this is gonna become kind of a regular thing. Yeah. Because it's such a deep topic. And we barely scratched the surface in the first one. Yeah, I mean, I re-listened to it and I was like, "Wow, <laughs> we barely scratched the surface." So I think you know it's a good idea to get in there and just answer some some questions because people hear initially they hear the argument of the overarching theme of scripture and they're like, "Wow, I like that," and and you know what that makes sense to me. But what about this? Right. What about that? But what about that? And that's who this podcast is for. This is for if you're the person who you listen to our original podcast or you listen to the podcast with Martin Selbredy and and you think wow that's pretty that's pretty interesting but what about this what about that then that's, this is for you right so i'm excited that this is one of my favorite topics so yeah and when, we'll and when we deal this- with
0: when we deal with a a podcast called Born to Rain it's not a surprise that we're we're back at this uh, yeah. topic here either I but think,
1: in the three words "born to reign," you have seven different doctrines, but the biggest one being post millennialism right? Unashamedly,
0: and and it's all it's all pointing to that. Um, and I think we've we've said it before, but the eschatology matters, right? Mm-hmm. Um, where your view of where we're at in history, where history is going, um, affects how you live. It affects how you um, work. It affects um, how it affects it touches every area of your life, yeah. Um, and so to neglect any to neglect it as either unimportant or um irrelevant or um you know just a conspiracy theory, you right? Know, that, that just kind of we'll just kick that off into the future. That'll be that's fine. Um, but it, it has real relevance to today mm-hmm. for us today, um, but. Ultimately, Scripture is our final authority, and so yeah. we we don't want to just be basing an eschatology on wishful thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, and Never. so, a, a lot of a lot of the um, uh, the objections that come from um, post-millennialism is that it's it's a it's an eschatology of wishful thinking. Mm. People will call it a an overrealized eschatology. Mm. That it it it's too good to be true. <laughs> um, yeah. So we want to deal with with some of those questions, in addition to some of the real, um, uh, heavy objections, particularly to a, a a partial preterist or an orthodox preterist approach to the book. Yeah, um, and so I think a good place to start is with everybody's favorite book, Revelation.
1: Revelation. Yeah, I th- I would add um, just to the little intro segment here our life is full your everyday life is full of what i call eschatological hyperlinks Right. hyperlink being something you click on and it brings you to a different website why do you get up in the morning i have to i have to go to work mm-hmm. okay click on that link why do you go to work i have to get money click on that link why do you have to get money i have to feed my son why do you feed your son because um it, it all it all goes to an end purpose and what is that end purpose jesus the gospel. <laughs> it should be the gospel of Jesus Christ. One thing Chuck Smith told me to my face one time actually that <gasps> you impacted, met
0: Chuck Smith.
1: What? <laughs> he, said, he said, always live a gospel centered life. Mm-hmm. So for somebody to say eschatology doesn't matter is just, I, it, it's not true because your life does have a telos and everything you do has a purpose, right. has an end goal. So your life is eschatological whether you want it to be or not. right. And then also I would say the Lord has been pleased to offer us rewards and incentives and that's okay. Mm-hmm. A lot of people will, I just do stuff out of pure obedience. Cool. And there's times to do that. There's also times where Paul says, obey your mother and father and so you're going to live a long life. Right. That's an incentive to obey. So anyways, I, that, I would just add that to the, to the intro, but Revelation...
0: Qu- Qu- quickly start. define telos.
1: Telos, a uh, Greek word. If you take an intro to philosophy, telos is a Greek word for purpose. Yeah. So everything has a purpose. A chair's purpose is for somebody to sit on it.
0: Right. So that's what I mean. Everything has an end goal. Right. And so, and so that in, in the topic of eschatology, I think it's important to, to note the difference between eschaton and, and telos that there are there are ends and purposes for certain events, for certain people, for certain things, um, that that are to, to point to something. Once they've fulfilled their purpose, that they're done. That they're they're fulfilled in those things. The es- eschatology is the end of the line. It that's the that's mm-hmm. the train. So if you deal with um think of it as as linear versus vertical, you know, so eschaton is dealing with the timeline. This is um through history going this way, telos is the vertical limit. Here's here's the importance of it going going up, um, if that makes sense. So, just an important side note. Um, so, the date of Revelation. It's such an important um, book that everybody will recognize. It's an important book. But um, some of the, the debate has now come down to whether whether the book was written very late in the late 90s um or uh, first century 90s not um uh, (laughs) 1990s light (laughs) wash denim and white tennis shoes uh, 90s frosted tips oh wait (laughs) i think that's early 2000s never mind yeah but it was it was showing signs in uh, the 90s gross now i have to get that out of my head thank you very much um but the date of revelation we're looking at there are really only two schools of thought either an early date in the the mid 60s or a late date in the um, 90s mm-hmm. so 96 f- if we just say so for the, for the sake of the discussion we'll say 95 and 65 yeah 65 like AD 95 AD mm-hmm. but just as a ballpark don't don't jump all over us as um, right the scholars will do that. We're just gonna, we're yeah. putting those as bookmarks to be able to just give kind of a a, a time frame reference. Um,
1: the first thing that I want to point out when it comes to this topic is that postmillennialism does not does emphasis not, on not 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 stand or fall based on the date of revelation. Right. That's not true. So a lot of people, well, the difference between premill and postmill is the date of revelation. <laughs> Absolutely not. That's not true. There are plenty of postmillennialists who don't accept the early date of Revelation. Historicists like Jonathan Edwards, idealists like Martin Solbretti. Uh there's, there's plenty of postmillennial brothers, people who I look up to, mm-hmm. who don't agree with the early date of Revelation, but they're still postmillennial. So this is not a linchpin. This is not a hinge. That's important to say because a lot of people are like, well, if I can prove the date of Revol- if somebody proves to me that Revelation was written later, that does nothing for my eschatology
0: besides tweaking a few things, right? I'm still postmillennial. As far as the the spiritual applicable principles, and we'll get into that in, in just a minute, um, but it, it it doesn't it really doesn't affect that much, right? Um, in in terms of that. Now, however, a, a partial preterist um, interpretation actually lends itself to being very very credible um, when it. Um, when you look at an early date, and then to see the preciseness of an early date um, of Revelation. So the two schools of thought—we'll we'll touch on the, the late date here really quickly—that's really predominant today, um, posits that the book of Revelation was written in about 95 AD, mm-hmm. um, based on very limited scholarship, actually. Um, that But I'll recognize plenty of well-respected theologians today do hold to it, like you said, but it's really based on a very obscure quote from Irenaeus um, that really ha- doesn't, doesn't actually have a whole lot to do, um, and it, it deals with when um, the churches in Asia send to John, they send these elders to John, and basically are requesting him to write a gospel. And uh, Irenaeus uses this phrase and says that these guys went to request John to write this gospel, and it says that John was seen—John, the author of Revelation, was seen in our lifetime, even in the reign of Domitian. Domitian being one of the emperors of Rome. So when he said, but the the Greek grammar of what um, Irenaeus is writing, he points to the the word he or it could really could refer to either John or the Revelation. So the the late date is really puts a a hinge on an extra-biblical source to say that John wrote the book of Revelation, in the time of Domitian, mm-hmm. the, the emperor Domitian. So you're pushing you're pushing yourself back to that when the grammar of what Irenaeus wrote actually makes more sense to say that he was talking he was talking about John. Yeah, um, the antecedent in that sentence is most likely the person, right. the subject. That John saw the revelation, and John was seen in even as even as late as the reign mm-hmm. of Domitian, which was in the 90s. Right. Um, so now we have, so that, that's the, that's kind of the hinging point is a, a rather obscure quote from Irenaeus. And then you have Eusebius. Right. Who said pretty much the same thing. The
1: book of Revelation was seen around, uh, what did we agree to say? 95, 90, 95. 95 AD. Eusebius says that, the church historian. Mm-hmm. Um, Eusebius, only problem was, didn't believe Revelation was scripture. Right. So not only does that taint all his views in Revelation, but also, in that day, one of the ways where they would help them decide if something was Scripture or that they would throw around in debates was the dating. Mm-hmm. Was it pre-70 AD or post-70 AD? And so for him to say it was written in 9-5 AD was kind of like, it's not Scripture because of that. Right. So there is a bias there that people should recognize. And But I think it all comes down to, let's say Irenaeus' sentence was talking about the vision. Let's say Eusebius did believe Revelation was Scripture. Those are extra biblical, right? So we have the difference between internal evidence, evidence from Scripture itself, and external evidence, evidence from outside of Scripture. And internal evidence is always
0: better, always more important, right? Because we believe in sola scriptura, and this is why I think it, it's interesting when you've dealt when when you brought it up um, a few times uh, in, in our conversations, both on air and off air. But the the dealing with objections and when when somebody, um, when we look at the the opposition to postmillennialism, has done a really really good job of burying the postmillennial web pages <laughs> in yeah. a, in a Google search. Oh yeah. Um, so you know, in in some of these conversations that I've had, particularly on the date of Revelation, I can't tell me tell you how many times it's been like, okay, the date of Revelation comes up, and the first thing that happens is a Google a quick Google search. When was when was the book of Revelation written? and the first thing that pops up, you just click on the first article, and it's this quote from Irenaeus that the revelation was seen during the time of Domitian. You then do a quick Google search. When was Domitian emperor? He was in he was emperor in the 90s. Therefore, boom, um, that settles it. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a really bad way of doing scholarship, biblical debate, anything like that. If we're talking about the biblical debate, you can't make one Google search the basis of your your view of a, of a book of the Bible. Right. So, now look at the internal evidence of the book of Revelation. When you start, first off, Revelation chapter one, verse one, starts with the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show his servants things which must shortly come to pass, emphasis there on shortly come to pass, And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ, and of all the things that he saw. Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear his words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. So that's that's your that's your first little jump into the book. This these things are shortly to take place. They're near at hand. When when the Bible says that something is near at hand, it's saying it's within arm's reach. Wait, wait. So when the Bible says that
1: something is near at hand, it means that it's near at hand. Near. It, oh it
0: it's a, oh, okay. it's about to it's about to happen. Oh. It, it's close. Yeah. Cool. So let's let's take this literally. So so if my boss tells me, Hey, can you do this shortly? If I come back to him in two thousand years, like that's just that's not okay. <laughs> or he comes to you on Monday morning and you say, Can you do this real quick? I need this as quick as you can get it, shortly, and you get it to him on Friday at five thirty PM, boss is not gonna be like, Yeah, that's I'm uh, <laughs> in trouble. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. So if we take that literally, we're saying this is this is happening literally. Um Near at hand, within arm's reach, within your lifetime. It's coming soon. Um, and we really don't have time to hit all of these, so we're kind of just going to no. hit highlights of some of the, the time stamps in here. Um, one of the common objections, I'll point this out, some of the, the letters to the churches. Um, you have the church, um, where is it here? The, um, is it Thyatira? That um, he says that they're rich. I'm just trying to find this, um, that they're rich, even though where the, the 95 AD proponents will say, well, the the Church of Thyatira hadn't had a chance to apostatize yet, or this other church that was supposed to be rich, um, they hadn't had a chance to, to have all this happen, so we need, we need more time. We need this extra 30 years for this part to be true. Um, but when you're looking at these early writings, is that there was an earthquake in the first early first century, and it traumatized this city. But the city was a major trade route and was able to build itself back up. They didn't use federal funding. <laughs> Looking at you, Texas. That's fine. They didn't need funding from outside. They yeah. said, we're going to build this up. And then Jesus says, I know that you're rich, but this— so going on. So if you just look through the, the evidence of those um those seven churches, the letters to the seven churches, there's difference in um there there's still none of that discredits um the the internal evidence of the writing of the, the church. Mm. So um the quick apostasy of the one church is is not evidence for a late date, is what I'll say to bolster against a a late date. Okay.
1: Um, okay, but w- what does John have to say about the... Let's get to the
0: meat of let's this. Let's get to these. That, that's the, just a side note, the yes. internal evidence. All right. Revelation chapter 11. Okay. He says, And there was given to me a reed like unto a rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. But the court which is without the temple, leave out and measure it not, for it is given unto the Gentiles, and the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty and two months. Okay. So, he's telling John, go measure the temple. John, we know, is exiled on Patmos, Mm -hmm. writing this, receiving this revelation. So, he's not physically going to the temple to measure it. But John knows what the temple looks like, because it's standing. He's been there. He's, okay. he's walked in that temple. Um, so he, he's given this responsibility to measure the temple, and this brings a spiritual principle out that the the Gentiles, the, the outer court, he's told to leave out because it's left to the Gentiles. So we're, we're given this principle here that um, the the temple is being given to the pagans. But what does it say? They, the Gentiles will tread underfoot for 40 and 2 months. How long was the Jewish Roman War? Any guesses? Forty and two months. Forty two months. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so the 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 trampling of the temple, the temple still standing, um, but then one of the other really big passages here, um, which is probably even more important, um, is when you start dealing with the beast of Revelation, and the the beast and the identification of the beast. And the nature of the beast. So you have um, in chapter 13, the head of the beast is wounded um, and fallen. And so everybody thinks the earth rejoices, <laughs> um, the, or the earth sees the, the falling of this beast. The beast has taken a sword wound to the head, uh, but then it resurrects. Um, if, you know, if you know the history, you have Nero self inflicted sword wound to the head. Everybody thinks the Roman Empire has collapsed, and now all of a sudden there's a, there's a regathering of the, of the Roman Empire um, under Vespasian that regathers it, and it appears that the, the Roman Empire is revived as though it came back from the dead. So you, you're, you see this the, the symbolism of the beast takes a mortal wound to the head but is resurrected. The head of the beast is obviously the emperor uh, of the empire emperor of the empire. Imagine that. (laughs) Um, So then you get to chapter 17, um, and this is probably the most significant internal time indicator, um, is Revelation chapter 17, verses 10 and 11, um, and John says, And there are seven kings. Five are fallen, and one is, and the other is not yet come. And when he cometh, he must continue a short time. And the beast that was and is not, even he is the eighth and is of the seven and goeth into perdition. So if you know the the emperors of Rome, the first emperor is Julius Caesar. Count with me. Julius Caesar. Number one. Augustus. Number two. Tiberius. Number three. Caligula. Number four. Claudius. Number five. That's five. He says five are fallen. One is... So that makes Nero. That puts us at Nero as the sixth head. Okay. Um, And then the the one to come shortly is Vespasian. Okay. Vespasian only reigned for a a very very short time, Um, less than a year, if I remember correctly. Hmm. Um,
1: And so when it says he must continue a short time, Vespasian literally only reigned for only reigned for a short time.
0: time. Oh, okay. (laughs) Um,
1: See, that's interesting. Yeah. So, so effectively, what you have here is John saying, in two different places. Number one, the temple is still standing, at this point. Right. And then number two, he says, "I'm writing this under the reign of Nero."
0: Right. And so he he tell he tells us this, uh, who are who are the who's the beast, who's this beast that's come out of the sea that we read in uh, chapter thirteen, um, who's the beast that comes out of the sea? Well, he describes it. It's a seven-headed, ten-horned beast. Well, it, it was very clear to an early audience that seven—the the seven heads would have been uh, a seven, um, the seven hills of Rome. You know, right? Um, so that's like saying the Mile High City. Mile us. High City. Ooh, that's, that's Denver. Denver. Um, the Big Easy. I don't, don't. know that one. <laughs> <laughs> what is it? Is that Chicago, I think. No, Chicago's the Windy City. Windy City. Hmm. The big okay, easy. now we're on a sidetrack. Big easy is ch- 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 New Orleans. Oh, see, I'm just not interested. The big in apple. I was I was mistaken. Big apple. I meant to say Big Apple. New York City. New York City. Big um, City Creek Jungle. Los city Angels. City of Angels. City of Angels, yeah. Yeah. Could could be both. So those Rome. Hey, the seven hill seven headed city. Seven hilled city. Yep. That's oh, Rome. That's Rome. Right. So seven seven heads, ten horns. Those are those are pretty easy to identify for an early audience, um, and then to identify these em- the heads of the the empire, the heads of the beast have arisen. Five have come, one now is one shortly to come. Um, so you've got a, a pretty clear um, a, a pretty clear progression of who identifying who those individuals are right um, really really nailing down the the evidence of of this being a specific time frame
1: yeah and I would also say six 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 for me although that's an obscure text I'll admit it the the fact that the Hebrew numerology six 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 says neuron Kaiser that that to me is a time indicator more than anything. Mm-hmm. The name of the beast is six six six. Let him who has understanding calculate it. Right. So every Hebrew knows. Okay. So let me write this out. Neron Kaiser. That's our emperor. Yeah. To me,
0: that's a, that's
1: that seems like a time indicator. Right. To me.
0: And that's an excellent point in that chapter there, when you're dealing with um, the worship of the beast, taking on the mark of the beast, um, all that. Um, when we deal with the spiritual applications of the, of the book of Revelation. If you look at um, the mark of the beast as being some future computer chip, imagine a first-century Christian in 95 AD reading this, going, oh, the mark of the beast. Man, I sure hope I don't take the, that computer chip. What, what happens if he's going to come along? Like, think of the, the paranoia. But this this book is supposed to be a revelation of Jesus Christ. This is supposed to comfort us. Um, so when when you push the the fulfillment of these prophecies into two thousand plus years into the future, um, you end up doing some really wild violence to the the text itself, um, making the making the application of the prophecy virtually worthless to the original audience. Mm. Just assuming that it's in ninety five a d mm-hmm. um, it, it it bears no relevance even if it was written in uh, or I, I, I'm backwards um, it's written in sixty sixty five, sixty65 um, but the the fut- it's a future prophecy the mark of the beast bears no relevance to that that group of people hmm. so they're supposed to live in paranoia of maybe taking the mark of the beast when if you look at this um, here the early church would have been given this mark. They said, look, watch out for this mark. Don't take the mark of the beast. Don't worship the beast and his image. They would have had something in their lifetime to be able to to recognize this is a temptation for us. This is, I'm not able to buy or sell without saying Caesar is Lord. I have to worship this beast and his image and then to, to take it forward. We then look back and say, "There's nothing new under the sun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Human governments run the same play over and over and over and over again." The devil isn't isn't smart. They're not. Well, it's very smart because if people continue to fall for it, uh, okay, he's smart, but he's not creative. <laughs> he, yeah, he's not creative, but he doesn't have to be, um, <laughs> because we're stupid. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Pe- people are stupid. Uh, so he, when there's uh, there was a literal relevance to the people in that day, and then there's similar relevance to us running the same, the temptation to worship the beast in his image carries through all of church history. Right. But if you flip it around, let's say the the beast is still a thousand years in our future. What are we worried about? We have We have nothing to worry about. With this, the the scripture is not giving us a revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not giving us uh, gospel victory. It's not giving us um, reasons for hope. It's giving us reasons to be panicked and fearful of the world's government. When you flip it around and say that this was a first century that's carrying through, we go. I know Jesus wins, but I'm not falling for this world's traps anymore. Mm-hmm. So, and what you're what you're
1: delineating is interpretation versus application, right? The interpretation of a text always has to do with the context, the historical context, the audience, the authorial intent. What was John trying to, trying to communicate to the churches in the first century? That's interpretation. Right. The first century context, who was he talking to? What, what, what was he saying? Application is then, okay, how does that apply to us 2,000 years later? That comes after interpretation. Right. But interpretation is
0: vital. For application. And, it's dri- and it has to be driven by, what does it say? Mm-hmm. Interpretation starts with, what does it say? Now what does it mean? Um, and if it's not, you can't jump your application, you can't get those out of order. Right. Um, and so, what does it mean? That's where getting the time frame references right really clarifies so much of the book, mm-hmm. the book of Revelation in particular. Um, when you get those right, everything is... A, a lot of things get sorted out. Mm-hmm. And then
1: what kind of what you've alluded to is the double fulfillment, uh, thematic themes throughout history, wherein right. right now we may not have the, the mark of the beast, the interpretive mark of the beast, but we have an app, an applicative mark of the beast wherein, you know, we might come to a time where we can't buy or sell. sell if we don't just bow down to the government, Yeah. well, that's, that doesn't mean that we are in the book of Revelation. It means that the way that evil
0: governments work is never changed, it's never going to change. And that the word of God is still living and active right. and bears direct relevance to our life. Mm-hmm. Um, and wait. so when I
1: see that, somebody says, what about this? This looks like the mark of the beast. I say, cool, what about this? And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. Amen. Cool. <laughs> come, at, come at it. Because yeah. the book of Revelation is a story of victory mm-hmm. time and time again.
0: So let's do this. Yeah. So let's look at some of the the content of the of the um, the book. You you uh, a re, a re, uh, excuse me. An objection was raised to you when we spiritualize, quote unquote, spiritualize the book of Revelation, <laughs> um, and we don't w- accused of not taking it literally. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the plagues in Egypt. As an example, um, um, why why would you say the the plagues in Egypt? Those are those are literal plagues. Those are real frogs coming up out of the Nile River. Okay. Um, those are real hailstones coming from heaven. Um, why are those literal? But then you say that the hailstones coming from heaven in Revelation are catapults or fill in the blank for the the plagues and katas- the kat- catastrophe of Revelation? Why are those symbolic?
1: Well, it's important that we don't collapse the differences in different types of uh, literature in the Bible. There's, there's five kinds of literature in the Bible. History, law, prophecy, poetry, and epistolary, meaning like the letters. Epistles. So the, so the, why, why are the plagues in Revelation symbolic while the plagues in Exodus are literal? Exodus is an historical account. Exodus is a history book. Mm. Revelation is a prophecy book. So they're different kinds of literature. So you can't read them monolithically because you're not allowing the text to communicate what they're trying to communicate. Right. So right there, you have a problem. Why is one literal? Why is one symbolic? Well, because one's historical and one's prophetic. And prophetic language is always, always, always full of symbols. Always. Uh, Did you say always? Always. Prophetic language, yeah. yes, okay. always. Always, just to be clear. Okay, <laughs> uh, in in Revelation one one, it says he sent and signified it. The Greek word "signified," according to scholars, means to write in symbols, signs, and figures. Hmm. It's the noun "sign" or "symbol," so so it quite literally means. In Revelation one one, it says that the the angel came and communicated to me. What using signs and symbols? What's about to happen? Right. So quite literally, the Book of Revelation gives us precedent and tells us how to interpret this book, and says this is a sign book. This is a symbolic book, and we know that since it's prophetic, we're we're to expect that. There's a lot of drawing on the Old Testament on on symbolic language from the Old Testament. Exodus is not a prophetic book. It's not that type of literature. It's a historic book. It's it's a gospel. So we cannot. Uh, flatten those differences. We can't read them in the same way all the time. We have to allow the uh, interpretation to fit the type of literature that it is.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So I hope that... Does that work for you? Yeah, that, make,
0: that makes sense. And I think it, it helps when we're dealing with um, symbols uh, to learn um, when the, the symbol is signifying something it's not just a vague it's not it's not vague it's supposed to uh it's a placeholder to help the imag- the imagination if you will mm-hmm. um uh, we're we're visual people we're we're people who who need those symbols uh to to understand those things so um the the giving of symbols in the book of revelation is y- you want to make sure that you link it to the right thing mm-hmm. that it's it's meant to symbolize something not um, everything generically, um nor is it should it take multiple steps to get from the symbol to the the actual thing that it 's symbolizing mm. so when you're dealing with um the the beast of revelation and we we would see that you know it's it's this beast that 's pretty clearly identified as the Roman empire when when we look at it historically um it just makes. Sense because it goes beast, Roman Empire, watch out for this. Here's what's happening here. When you start trying to shape shift that symbol, you end up having to make multiple steps to make this a futurist um, interpretation. That the beast, this beast has to represent something that some represents something else that ends up leading us to being this is an antichrist that's coming, Uh, it's going to be this one world ruler. Um, But it's it's funny to me, even in the, the interpretation, that, that most of the, the futurist position will end up saying that the, the Antichrist's reign comes from a, quote-unquote, revived Roman Empire, because they follow these symbols and recognize, even in their interpretation, that it's talking about Rome. Yeah. But they insist on it being future, Mm-hmm. Rather than looking at it and saying, look, this, this was fulfilled line by line as a, the the, actual, the real Roman Empire. Right. Um, not having to resurrect a Roman Empire 2,000 plus years in the future. Right. And let me, let me
1: be clear that everybody interprets text based on their literature, on the, on the literary style. Mm-hmm. Let me give you an example of just two ditches in the road there's one ditch in the road that says everything is historical literature and lit and should be therefore interpreted literally. Mm. Well, that gets you into trouble when you read something like, uh, I don't know. What's, what's a common Jesus, there goes the lamb of God, right? Like that. Sorry. Jesus wasn't actually a lamb or, or somebody will came up to me on campus a couple years ago and said, can I tell you about my mother, God? And I said, yeah, I kind of want to hear this. Tell me, me. show me, show me the (laughs) verses. And so she showed me this verse and it was uh, a verse in Revelation and it said, our mother, something. And then the verse from Isaiah, mother, God, or something like that. God treats his people like a mother or whatever. She's like, see, God is our mother. And I was like, you're interpreting prophetic literature literally, and you can't do that. Mm -hmm. You can't, this isn't a textbook. Right. And but then you have the other side of the road, somebody, I believe in a literal six-day creation in Genesis. Right. Somebody else will come and say, I'm going to read this historical account as a prophetic book, and I'm going to treat this as symbolic. You can't do that. Right. See, e- either side of the road gets you into theological liberalism. Right. And you can't do that. What we have to, what, what governs the day, what, what rules is authorial intent. Mm-hmm. What was Moses trying to tell us when he wrote Genesis? What was John trying to tell us when he wrote Revelation. That's what governs the meaning of the text. You stupid. No, not what's nine plus ten.
0: Twenty-one. You- well, we've come to that part of the episode where we discuss smart phrases for stupid people. proverb today is Proverbs 1, 8 and 9 says, My son, hear the instruction of thy father and forsake not the law of thy mother, for they shall be an ornament of grace unto thy head and chains about thy neck. Hmm.
1: These are good ones. These are so good. It's important to recognize that this is right after he says like, if if you want instruction, this is right after this is the introduction of the book saying, If you want instruction if you if you've conquered the temptation to be lazy and say i don't care about the things of the lord knowledge or whatever it pops up okay you've conquered that now how do you get it first fear the lord second listen to your parents (laughs) so what this says to me is me as a father solomon just takes it for granted you're you are going to teach your son yeah so me as a father i i take this as an indirect command my son, hear the instruction of thy father. If my son has no instruction coming from my lips to him, and he has nothing to hear, that's that's on me. Right. But also, me as a son, I need to hear the instruction of my father. If my father says something, I need to listen. So, I see I see here both direction for fathers and for sons.
0: Yes, and um, I think it's important to note that responsibility to teach, um, and that there are there's benefits for. Uh, there's benefits for, for listening to it. Um, talk about symbolic language here. Uh, <laughs> the, the instruction of your father is an ornament of grace under your head and chains about your neck. <laughs> it, it's bling. Yeah. You know the the teaching the teaching of godly parents to their children um, is rich ornaments. It's mm. it's um, ornate. You're 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 given. This teaching that brings um, it makes you look good you know people people wear jewelry people wear chains um, to they they wear chains to, to decorate to to ornament themselves it's uh, but the the instruction of your of your father of your parents um, listening to godly parents is living the rich life mm-hmm. you're, you're wearing the bling in the workplace in the in church um you're you're honoring your parents. You're showing the the parents are saying, I pass this down to you. Now go live it. Make mm-hmm. it clear that I pass this on to you.
1: Right. And and says, Law of the mother, law of thy mother. Yeah. What is the mother telling the son? Well we we end up seeing in Proverbs 30, 31. 31, that she tells her son, she says, My son Lemuel, do not give your strength to woman. So so what does a mother teach her son? She's to teach her son how to be a man. Mm-hmm. She's to teach her son how to lead. She's to teach her son, do not become weak and give your strength to a woman. Yeah. She's to perpetuate the patriarchy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> what is the son gonna what is the father supposed to tell his son? Well, it's that's the what the rest of the book is about. But you for example, Proverbs 7, he says, My son, do not fall for the for the whore when she kisses you with a brazen face and smells like cinnamon and don't fall for it right so both the father and the mother have a duty to teach their son how to deal with the opposite sex uh but it goes much deeper than that that's just an example of the rest of the book tells you what to tell your children and if you don't have a father or a mother who's going to tell you you read the
0: rest of this book yep (laughs) And and it's got you this is this is God's um parenting book there's whole sections in bookstores about um how to parent your kids well Um, and a lot of them don't even reference the book of Proverbs (laughs) I know Um, and and yet this is God's divine parenting manual Mm -hmm. Um, and so as a as a child um, I think this is one of the the really cool things for us Um, having been raised in Christian homes is that we do look back at the the teaching that our parents gave us and say wow they did pass on a treasure they they gave us a treasure trove, just by virtue of us living in a Christian household, mm-hmm. um, and so just on that that front, to see that they passed on this amazing heritage to us, uh, we don't want to squander that. If you're given uh, an ornament of grace on your head and chains about your neck, you don't treat those flippantly. You don't just you don't just throw those to the mud. You don't just um, you know those don't just go in a stock drawer. Those <laughs> those get displayed in a prominent place, you wear them, you're proud of them, um, and, and you, you, you honor your parents in those things. Mm. So that has been um, Proverbs chapter 1, verses 8 through 9 in our ongoing series, Smart Phrases for Stupid People.
1: Okay, Tim, I have a beef with you. Oh no. You keep telling me post postmillennialism means the world's gonna get better eventually. <laughs> but it's not getting better. So
0: how do you how do you know the world is not getting better?
1: How do I know? Yeah.
0: Well, uh, I mean, look at America. Look at America. Look at us. Well, since when is America the world? <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> uh um the the idea um of america as the the litmus test for whether or not the world is getting better is just a really bad way of doing um theology. you
1: mean that america isn't the
0: core of the earth no okay um and so true though i mean s- yeah such a, such it. a common question that gets asked <laughs> in the discussion of eschatology, um, is um, where's America in end times prophecy? Why why isn't America in the end times prophecy? We see Russia and uh, Syria and Iran and all that stuff. And like, eh, Well, OK. Um, debatable. I see America in um, go make disciples of all nations. It's pretty simple, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that's where America is, is that um, they're to be discipled The same way every other nation is supposed to be discipled. Um, And when the the nations, as Psalm 2 teach us, um, when the nations plot a thing against the Lord and His anointed, they get crushed. Mm -hmm. Um, So right now, I I do believe we're witnessing um, a social cultural collapse of America, and it's no surprise that it comes immediately within a generation of a all-out apostasy, mm-hmm. where we stopped calling ourselves a Christian nation. Um, we, we retreated. The Christian Church retreated from culture um, and said, nope, we're, we're not going to be a part—we're supposed to keep our faith and our politics separate. Um, we retreated, and now America no longer conf- confesses Christ as Lord, no longer considers itself a Christian nation, and it's bearing the consequences for mm-hmm. it. Just look at what's happened in the last fifty years. Uh, abortion gets raised into a um, a norm; it becomes a, a social norm, um, and you have pride parades. What happened? What does the Bible tell us happens after pride? <laughs> uh, so pride goes before destruction. Mm-hmm. Well, we have we literally have parades called. Pride parades. What did we expect was going to happen to America? Right.
1: Uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll go further than that. I think America was doomed to fail two hundred and thirty years ago when the founding fathers specifically left Jesus Christ out of the Constitution. Mm-hmm. Right there, they they signed the death warrant of America. Right there. So that's my opinion. So,
0: but with point standing with, with good intentions though, like they they weren't trying to exclude. I think some of it was there was a. The overwhelming view of the people then was Christian, and it was oh, kind of yeah. assumed that Christ was Lord. Yeah, uh, they took th- it for granted. I'll still say you sh- should. Doesn't hurt to write it down. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, I want that in writing. Put that in writing. Yeah. Um, it'll help future generations when they decide to be idiots like yeah. we're we're seeing now. Um,
1: All that to say, though, America is not the world.
0: It's <gasps> not the litmus test of whether or not we, things are getting better. We
1: see some pretty cool things going on in the rest of the world. Yeah. Right? Hungary. Oh, Hungary. I love Hungary. (laughs) Just, if you don't, if look at, for example, Hungary excommunicated George Soros from their country. (laughs) They said he's an international criminal. Get him out of here. That's a a cool country right there. Poland. Poland declared Jesus Christ as their king.
0: And that was not that long ago. That was, what, 2016, I think?
1: No, yeah, not that long ago. It
0: was just within the last five or ten years.
1: Rwanda. Rwanda is so Christianized. That they're sending missionaries here <laughs> to us. South America is becoming Protestant at a faster rate
0: than Europe did in the Reformation. Right. How many it's times like, do I
1: have to say that to people? America's like, not the world. The National Presbyterian Church of Mexico has more members, has twice the amount of members as American Presbyterian churches do. They're wow. more conservative than most Presbyterian denominations here, and the country is half the population of ours. That's wild never hear about mexico nope but they got they got some something going down there so america's america's going down yeah, yeah we're going down the toilet but the rest of
0: the world isn't and we always want to say that we're coming back to scripture so when i say that i read scripture and i say the world is getting better and i get challenged with how can you say the world is getting better look at america look at the world i mean just look at the world you have china that's persecuting christians that it's not humane to live in China. I don't interpret the Bible based on what I see going on in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe that the world is getting better and will get better continually because the Bible teaches that. Right. Um, it's not that um, the world is getting better because I have this pipe dream and that I'm—because <laughs> uh, both sides— Optimist and pessimist can look at both sides. There's there's plenty of evidence to say, look, America in the last 40 years has murdered 65 million babies. How can you say that it's been getting better? On the other front, we say the all these things that you just said, uh, South America becoming Protestant faster than Europe in the Reformation. You have these Christian nations actually confessing Christ as Lord. So we both have um, uh, evidence to say things are getting better, things are getting worse, what are, what's going on here? But when we come down to it, what does the Bible teach? Mm-hmm. The Bible says multiple times, the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. All of the nations of the earth shall stream up to my holy hill, even Zion. They will come to worship the Lord Jesus says, "I'm not desiring people who worship me in word and deed. I'm looking for people who will worship me in spirit and in truth." There comes a day when we're not looking at uh, this Jerusalem versus Samaria. We will be looking at um, the gospel coming to spirit and truth. The promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31 is, um, "I will write my law on their hearts, and they will worship me. No man will teach his. No man will have to teach his neighbor because." All will know the Lord. So mm-hmm. we, and those are just a few of the passages. That's just a small minority. Um, yeah. So we don't base this off of, oh, well, just look at the, watch the news. Yeah. You know, because if you do that, you'll just get into, into a tizzy of, oh, yeah. the good news day versus the bad news day, good news day, yeah. the bad news day.
1: Yeah, uh, forget the circumstances. Throw the newspaper yeah. away. Stop telling me what you saw the other day. I'll stop telling you what I saw from Hungary. Right. Let's, okay, let's get down to the meat of it does our faith transcend our circumstances? Yeah. Did the Apostle John's faith transcend his circumstance when he was staring up at his Lord, beaten and bloodied and nailed to a cross? Mm -hmm. Because that's the worst thing that's ever happened in history. And if his faith could transcend that circumstance, yours can transcend this one. Yes. There's nothing today that's going to be worse than crucifying the Son of God. Nope. Nothing.
0: Now, I will say, we talked, we talked Calvinism last week, right? Um, but we're, when we look at um, the depravity of man, we recognize that man's depravity doesn't go away. Yeah. Throughout, <laughs> throughout history, man's depravity doesn't go away except by the inner working of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit takes that dead heart of stone and turns it into a heart of flesh that can please God. Mm-hmm. Now... Technology is improving. Medical science improving. 170,000 people every day are lifted out of poverty. World starvation, people people who die of starvation, um, is at an all-time low. Things are going up. But with technology, with the availability of food, with the availability of wealth, does that give more opportunity to exercise your depravity? Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. but it also gives just as much opportunity to exercise to, to for the spirit to transform those things in your life. Um, so the more things improve, the nastier the wicked things look. Hmm. Right? Um, think of think of it like this: you spill spaghetti sauce on a black shirt. <laughs> Is that stain noticeable? Not really. Not really, but. If you're looking for it, you can see it um If you spill it on a blue shirt, can you notice the stain? Yeah, mm-hmm. um, if you spill it on a gray shirt, even worse, even worse. If you spill it on the most pristine white shirt that you own. Don't tell your mom <laughs> that nobody's looking at your eyes anymore. They are looking at the spaghetti sauce that's on your white shirt, right. The white shirt is a very, very white shirt. So the, the more Christ works, the more the world is purified, the more his church holds to the doctrines of truth, the more um, blatant the, the attacks of the enemy are, the more um, evident the, the depravity of man looks. Mm. Um, so as things get worse, or as things get better, the bad things look worse. Right. So that's not, the, the presence of evil is not a negation of the fact that things are getting better.
1: Right. I think people sometimes forget, like you have John MacArthur calling post-millennialism prosperity gospel or right. liberalism. I think Jack Hibbs the other day called us liberals, <laughs> which is just hilarious. But <laughs> they forget that I'm not post-millennial in spite of my Calvinism, wherein right. I believe man is created, or not created, man is by nature evil and condemned into hell for eternity. Mm-hmm. Nobody believes man is more evil than I do. Yeah. <laughs> but because I believe in the electing, irresistible, saving power of the Holy Spirit, I believe that God can change the world. Yeah. I don't believe God changes the world by leaving man in his depraved state. I believe God changes the world through regeneration. mm mm-hmm by taking the heart of stone, giving a heart of flesh. Regeneration, new genesis, new creation. Mm-hmm. He's creating something new, okay? So I don't get when people say, well, what about the depravity of man? What about it? What about your depraved heart before you were saved? Yeah, I'm arguing for gospel victory yeah. over that heart. So that doesn't make sense to me. Also, what doesn't make sense to me, take, take all the countries in the world and organize them by first country First world country, second world country, third world country, respectively right what do you have? Oh, you have Protestant nations, Roman Catholic nations, and pagan nations, respectively. Mm-hmm. Is that an accident? Is that a coincidence? not likely <laughs> or like the or like the Bible says, if you keep my covenant,
0: I will bless you right that's not prosperity gospel that's just believing in the Bible. Well, and look at what happens to the collapse of the nation that abandons God. When God promises blessing to people who keep his word. Now that's not a prosperity gospel to be clear. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that that's not, um, we're, we're not saying that, okay, just because I'm a Christian, I'm automatically, um, going to be, you know, super rich and going to be driving the nicest cars and all that. Uh, but he says the, the, the law of God. Look at the, just look at the Ten Commandments and imagine an entire society. Just just look at the Ten Commandments. That's it. You know, let's set the rest of the law aside for a second. Um, just the Ten Commandments. What does a society look like that loves the Lord their God, that doesn't profane His name, that doesn't covet his neighbor's things, that doesn't bear false witness against his neighbor? Does that society that honors God not receive material blessing as a direct consequence of their submitting to it. He, God's baked this into the world, that the way we, when we live according to his law, the natural consequence of following his law is blessing. Mm-hmm. And that's not just spiritual. It doesn't just happen, oh, it's in our hearts. I didn't, I didn't bear false witness. I didn't covet against my neighbor. I didn't commit adultery with, with my neighbor's wife. I've uh, I've been saved here in my heart, but it has no relation to the way I live. That's just not how that's not how God made the world. Right. Um, and so to to look at the world and say, okay, look at this is how God made us, that following his law brings blessing. Mm -hmm. Now take it to the flip side. You have the Protestant Christian uh nations who love God, follow his commands and he blesses them with prosperity because that's how that works. Mm-hmm. And what, do the, what does the, the pagan world do? Well, they covet and steal and bear false witness. And what happens when they see the wealth of their neighbor, they covet and lie and steal, and what happens to the nation? The nation collapses and the, and the prosperity goes away. Mm. Um, so the more, the more um, God's word is followed, the more aggressively the enemy is going to attack it. Um, and the more it gets built up, the more um, violent tearing it down has to become. Um, so to say things are not getting better just because of the presence of opposition and enemies um, is actually evidence that things are getting better because the enemy is fighting harder because we're making progress.
1: Right. And, and just another thing on the prosperity, prosperity thing, um, it's funny cause I've never been accused of like prosperity gospel until I got on this topic and I was like, wait, what? I, th- I thought we all agreed on this. Did you thank God when you got your new job? <laughs> and if you did, then you need to repent of prosperity gospel because if you think that's a blessing, then you're re- repent, right? Th- th- no, nobody really believes that. And if you look at the covenant blessings enumerated in Deuteronomy and the rest of scripture, they're long-term blessings, children. He says, if you, if you keep my covenant, I'll bless you with an abundance of children. So yes, children are a blessing, but that's a long-term blessing. It takes, I mean, how long does it take for your children to become a blessing? A generation. It takes a generation, <laughs> probably 40 years. How long? Do, and then he, what's another blessing of the covenant? Wine. How long does it take you to grow wine? It takes seasons. <laughs> seasons and seasons, and then you have to age it in the barrels. These generations, I mean, these blessings are generational blessings that work their way out through a course of years. That's not to say that you can't, like Job, be the most righteous man on earth and God strike you down and make you poor. He can do that. But that's extraordinary compared to Psalm 112, which says the righteous man has riches in his house. Mm -hmm. And Job the beginning, he has riches in his house. The end, God blesses them with twice the amount of riches in his house. Right. So trials are not the same thing as consequences. And that we should probably do a whole entire episode on the theology of wealth. But you said, like you said, the presence of God's enemies. And I wanted to piggyback off that by reading Deuteronomy 20. Okay. And I, I see this as a picture of the new covenant because Paul says these things happen as an example for us. So I'm just going to read this. When you go out to battle against your enemies and you see horses and chariots and people more numerous than you do. That's somebody saying, what about this abortion and this murder and this, that and this and that? And, you know, everything's going bad. Do not be afraid of them for the Lord your God is with you who brought you up from the land of Egypt. And so it shall be when you are on the verge of battle that the priest shall approach and speak to the people and he shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you are on the verge of battle with your enemies. Do not do not let your heart grow faint. Do not be afraid. Do not tremble or be terrified because of them. For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies, to save you. Thanks. I didn't write that. I didn't write it myself. But yeah. <laughs> no, I, that's... When we're surrounded by our enemies, when your enemies are more numerous than you, when they have more horses and chariots and people than you, wh- what are we to do? Be in despair? How could we ever do this? How can we? No, we have faith in our God who's on our side and fighting for us. And I like it that way. Mm-hmm. I'd rather win a battle 3% against the 97%. I'd rather be Gideon's 300 against Babylon's 10,000 and win and look back and say, the hand of the Lord is on us. Our God was fighting for us. I want to win by faith. I don't want to win by carnal means. Right. So I like that. People, well, we're outnumbered, and what about... Cool. Good. Like like Jocko.
0: That's how I like it.
1: Like Jocko. Good.
0: (laughs) I like that. Well, and I think think that's um, one of the things that uh, Salbretti told us when when we interviewed him was um, uh, Christ's army the only army in the world where the more of them you kill, the stronger they get. Right. You're like uh, Christians are commanded to rejoice in persecution, so um, we're to expect persecution, um, even as we grow and mature and and um, receive the blessing of God. We should expect opposition because the opposition will seek us out. Um, it, it doesn't like. God's blessing, and it can sniff it away. It can sniff it from a mile away. Mm. Um, so the the enemy is going to come for us when we're there. Um, and when the enemy's at their, at our doorstep, we don't have to go seeking it out. <laughs> right. It's, it's right here. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, some days it's like, okay, what spiritual battle am I supposed to be fighting today? Oh, well, how about I get hit in the face with uh, the, <laughs> the chariots of the of the uh, of the surrounding forces? Right. I, and then praise God. That I was counted worthy of the sufferings right. of Christ. Right.
1: Um, right. When I think of postmillennialism, I think of Paul in chains. Right. Writing. You can hear the chains clinking while he's writing. We got him on the run, boys. Yeah. I think of the the bishop or the the pastor who's being burned at the Reformation and said, "You're lighting a candle that will never go out." Yeah. I I think of the the marine who, when they were surrounded in the Korean War, he somebody's like, "Hey, we're, we're surrounded," and he's like, "Well." They can't get away from us now, boys. <laughs> <laughs> They're here. And you think of Gideon's men. God says, you have too much men. Like, what? Yeah, you have 10,000, but I want you to call it down to 300. Yeah. Because I want this battle to be chalked up to me, not your numbers.
0: And that's the point right there. If we do it by our might, by our cunning, by our physical ability, we lose we fail to credit God for what He's done. Right. Um, God wants the victory to be done by Him, and right. so we're not, um, you know, one of the often uh, criticizing uh, of us would would come to um, we make we make the gospel a political issue, um, and yet God is saying, "I start small and grow big, mustard seed to a mustard tree." Leaven in a lump, my kingdom grows, and it's done by my power," mm-hmm. says the Lord God Almighty. "Not by my nor my power, but by the Spirit," right. says the Lord God Almighty. Mm-hmm. So God is God is doing this, and we will affirm this um, uh, to our dying breath. That right. what God is doing in the world is by His Spirit, and that's when we come down to say, the victory that we're talking about is includes. Political victory. Yeah. But first and foremost, it's gospel victory that saves dead, wretched sinners and Mm -hmm. gives them eternal life. Yeah. Um, A promise of a resurrection. Um, And that God made humanity to be saved and he saves to the uttermost. Mm -hmm. He saves the world. That the gospel permeates through this world all the way. Right. And he wins. By his spirit, not by our cunning, not by our strength, not by our arm wrestling, and not by, you know, um, a a sudden uh, millennial kingdom that comes out of earth like hellfire missiles from an (laughs) F-22. The 110th Airborne? Yeah, so the kingdom of God um, comes one person preaching the gospel to another person who takes it home to their family, and their family shares it with their next-door family and that family goes to their work and transforms their work office by the power of the gospel it's not Pearl Harbor it's relationship it's one person to one person and the gospel transforming individual hearts right. to the point where he's built an ornate temple of living souls mm-hmm. not not bricks but living souls that make up the temple of God
1: yeah in the I want people to understand that God wants it to seem impossible. Mm -hmm. Does it seem impossible? Oh yeah. Yeah? Good. (laughs) God wants it that way because God is in the business of resurrection. Yep. He wants something impossible
0: and then he's going to bring life out of it because that's what our God does. God stacks the deck against himself. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And then, and then, uh, comes back. Right. uh, and, And is doing it. Um, one of the other things I think is is really important to note: um, first Adam, second Adam.
1: Mm.
0: Um, first Adam brings all of humanity down with him. Were there still a few faithful people throughout history? When we read, when we read um, the Old Testament, there are a few faithful people in here in the midst of a lot of wickedness. But now Christ comes, brings the gospel. And starts to transform lives, where he goes. It's no longer. It, it starts to. It looks like a bow tie almost, where um, it goes to the worst of the worst, where the people who murdered the Son of God are right there at the at the pinnacle. But then it grows to say, um, the second Adam brings people out of bondage to sin, out of bondage to death. He saves humanity with him um, right. to where the righteous outnumber the unrighteous under the first Adam, the unrighteous outnumber the righteous under the second Adam. The righteous are the, are the crown and glory of creation. Gradually. Gradually. Just
1: like the first Adam, the curse was gradual. Yeah. 20 minutes after they ate the ate the bad apple, you would have walked in the garden and been like, oh, this place is awesome. This, right. There's no sin here. 20 minutes ago, they just brought sin into the world. It was Mm -hmm. gradual. Yeah. Babble, the horrible things Babylon did didn't happen for hundreds of years. Yeah. The the curse came into the world gradually through the first Adam. The second Adam came to undo the curse gradually far
0: as the curse is found. And he let the curse work its way through the whole world. Right. (laughs) He stacked the deck against himself. Right. So that he's, and then says, I'm going to buy it back.
1: And I'm doing it back through the blood of the lamb and the word of
0: our testimony. Mm-hmm.
1: G.K. Chesterton says, "The one glorious thing on God's green earth is to fight a losing battle and not lose it." Mm. <laughs> isn't that a great? Mm. That's a great quote, mm. isn't it?
0: That's. You think could fight a losing battle and not lose it?
1: I think something that automatically uh, takes premillennialism out of the picture as a possibility. For me is Isaiah 42, where he says, I'm going to, I'm going to bring justice to the nations. Right. But he has like this weird, almost vague statement. And it says, he will not cry out nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoking flax he will not quench, but he will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Mm. So that that cryptic, he will not cry out and raise his voice. He's not going to break a bruised reed. That speaks of, it reminds me of that one song. I think it's by Chris Tomlin. He could have come like a
0: raging, you know that song? Raging yeah. That, yeah. Yes, I know what you're talking about.
1: He could have come like a raging storm. He could have came like a lightning bolt, but he came like a winter snow, quiet and soft yeah. and in the night. That's a that's a that song's post mill right there, <laughs> <laughs> because that's exactly what this is saying. He's not going to come cataclysmically to bring justice on the earth. Right. He's coming softly. He's not going to raise his voice. A, a reed that's already bruised. He's going to be so gentle it's not going to break. And a what it, what flame. does he
0: say when he's not going to break it? What is what is he doing? He's not leaving the reed broken. He's he's restoring it. The 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 broken reed is to. Um, if you break it off, you're killing it. Um, he, he's restoring it. He's restoring life. He, he's, bringing, he's bringing life.
1: Yeah, in a gentle way. Yeah. So gentle that a small little candle is not going to be blown out. That's not the 101st Airborne. That's not the bazookas of the Battle of Armageddon. That's not a sudden cataclysmic event wherein he crushes everybody and then starts raining. Mm-hmm. That's a, That's the exact opposite. It's a small infiltration. It's just and and then it becomes gradual and it's gentle and it's and before you know it he's established justice on the earth. But not in the not in the military way, not in the boom. It's not <laughs> sudden. And so for me this this verse is like automatically outlaws premillennialism. Yeah, in my mind. And and it goes along with the whole well enemies and all this stuff. God wants it to work like this. He doesn't want it to work, uh, in, in the way of just the suddenness. Right. Another one. We have, we have one more. Yeah. Non-literal interpretation equals subjective interpretation. If it's not literal, then you're just making it up, right?
0: Yeah, totally. (laughs) No, (laughs) (laughs) this
1: is a, this so this is a misunderstanding of our position. Uh, But our position is that all the symbols in Revelation are either explained in other prophetic literature, Isaiah, Joel, Jeremiah, or explicitly revealed by John himself. At least 36 times in the book of Revelation, John says, oh yeah, and this means... (laughs) So it's either Scripture interprets Scripture or Scripture interprets Scripture. So we believe that Scripture interprets Scripture. No subjectivity allowed at all. I would actually say that in, in some instances, uh, not letting Scripture interpret Scripture, trying to take those symbols literally leads to the most subjective reading of all.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, how many times have I sat at the table and somebody says, no, the locusts are cobra helicopters. <laughs> and somebody says, no, the locusts are Chinook helicopters. And somebody else is on the, over there saying, no, the locusts are actually giant locusts that's subjective right there. Trying to take it literally and trying to no, scripture interprets scripture. Locusts are the demons that came out of the pit Mm -hmm. where they were thrown into where Jesus cast them out. So you take scripture, interpret scripture. It leaves no room for subjectivity. Right. So uh, that, that just falls in its face. But I think it, I think it leads to an overarching issue and that's people tend to take obscure texts and build entire systems off of them. (laughs) Like, (laughs) Okay, what's the most, ex, I mean, excruciatingly confusing text? Revelation, 2 Thessalonians, and Daniel. I'm going to take those three and build everything off of them. Right. <laughs> that makes no Bible 101, Scripture Interpretation 101, is we interpret the unclear portions of Scripture in light of the clear per- portions of Scripture. Right. So you can't take 2 Thessalonians. Could, could I explain 2 Thessalonians too? Yes the man of lawlessness who goes and declares himself God in the temple. Yeah, Titus did that in 70 AD mm-hmm. before they destroyed the temple. So yeah, that happened in history and it happened how how Paul said it would happen and yeah, I can prove that, sure. But I'm not going to build my <laughs> you shouldn't build an entire system based off of
0: those texts. Right. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, and and nor do we, you know, we we like to bring up the Psalm 110. It's like um, so, so we'll, we'll call it okay. Psalm one ten. Um, sit at my. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Um, is that an? We're not basing our entire theology off of that one text, other than the fact that the apostles who are writing the New Testament quote that verse more than any other Old Testament text. Yeah. No, we're not doing that. So that the apostles so, did that. So, that, <laughs> so, so they didn't just take. An, an obscure text. They took it and they said, "Look, this is what the law and the prophets was all about. David wrote this, and this is what the whole story of the Bible is all about. This is what Jesus came to do. This is this is Jesus here. We're not being obscure um, with with this. We're we're growing it um, from." Our interpretation of Scripture, um, based on the rest of Scripture, <laughs> yeah. of of what was promised. Um, so they they looked at the prophets. The New Testament quotes the Psalms and it quotes Isaiah extensively. And those those talks from Isaiah are not obscure. We all know them. We read them at Christmas time. We uh, we know Isaiah fifty three. All those things. Um, but when we talk about the victory of the Messiah in the world, we take those passages not based on really strange, um, hard-to-understand, cryptic prophecy, but we look at, OK, how did how did this prophecy play out from the prophet's mouth? And, and what did the, the New Testament have to say about it? When you base your entire theology around um, a coming Antichrist that's not once mentioned in the New Testament, that the New Testament never quotes those passage those obscure passages in Daniel and um, that type of thing. It's like okay, that that puts you kind of in a weird, um, uh, a, a weird uh, position to be trying to to justify um, from those really really obscure and difficult to interpret texts.
1: Right. Everybody acknowledges they're difficult, so don't stick your flag on it and say I understand this better than for two thousand years, but I'm the one. I understand this, and are building a system on it. We
0: we fixed it. Don't do that. Yeah, so we want we want to be cautious with it all, all the way through, um, and to understand that um, postmillennialism is not just a a pipe dream. Right. We're not basing this off of proof texting because proof texting, like you said, is a really bad way of doing theology. Um, we're we're zooming out and we're saying. Um, what is what is Scripture as a whole teaching? What is the trajectory mm-hmm. of history? Um, I think we do a disservice to the Bible to say that everything is uh, that the Bible is just complete garbage, um, and we, we we've um, it's it's all about the depravity of man. Right. Um, if I if I look and read the Bible and say the only thing that I can come out with is the depravity of man and that things are going to get awful and worse. Um, I've missed the point of the scripture.
1: Right. Um, No, the point is that Jesus has come to redeem the depravity of man, to fix
0: it. The point is that God is sovereign over all things, and he redeems even the broken things, Mm. even the depraved man, especially the depraved man. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's not all at once. It's beautiful and gradual. Um, We we trust that his promises are, our yes and amen. So we're not believing this just because um, of anecdotal evidence. We're not believing this just because we feel like it, but we believe it because we believe that Scripture teaches this, right. that the overarching theme of Scripture is Jesus wins. Right. Um, and he wins
1: totally. Mm-hmm. Um, and in spite of your seemingly unfavorable circumstances. Mm-hmm. So when you, see, when you see the enemy's chariots, laugh harder. When you see the enemy has more people on their side, sing louder in church. Get get a bigger bottle of wine for dinner on Sunday. When you see that stuff, be happy because the Lord your God is on your side. He's fighting for you and with you, and we're going to win.
0: We'll finish this with that G.G.K. Chesterton quote again, because it's just so good. It's we good. just got to read it again. The one glorious thing on God's green earth is to fight a losing battle and to not lose it. So go preach the gospel to all nations. We'll catch you guys next time. Peace on earth.